Hello, welcome to the people uh, on K Chung, 1630 AM in Chinatown. Uh, we're here with uh, Katie Herzog and Andrew Choate. Um, I'm Matthew Timmons, and we have, we're here. My, my co host, Ben White, is here as well. Hi, Matt. Hi, Ben. Hi, uh, Matt. Hi, Ben. Hi, Hi Andrew. Hi, Katie. <laughs> um, there's a baby uh, in Wanda. the outside studio, Wanda. She's keeping an eye on us, making sure we don't say any bad things. So um, the people uh, features the voices and ideas of the people that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. On K-Chunk, 1630 AM, we're here every third Sunday at 3 PM. I know that takes a little bit of calendrical math to figure out, but it is the third Sunday of the month at 3 p.m. Calendrical. Think, yeah, calendrical. Yeah, just think of the number three. Uh, so uh, do this little spiel. Uh, you know, more and more the people simply choose for, you know, whatever reason. Power to the people in the home of people power on the Internet. A radio revolution offering comfort and queuing up special stuff. This is the sound you love to listen to. The power of the people to make atmospheric, psychedelic, and dance-oriented conversation. Radio for the people featuring art literature, talk, cultural criticism, visual culture, intelligent witticisms, and so much more. The people is me, the people is you, the people is we, and you can too, like a broken ma record magically repaired. And what Matt, what Matt, what Matt means <laughs> by <laughs> that, it's gonna, it's gonna be that kind of show. Matt <laughs> means by that is every month we're bringing in interesting people from the world of like art, writing, music, disc golf. <laughs> uh, Etc. Uh, and having a conversation with them and trying to get them into a conversation with each other. Uh, and so we'll start by talking about the introduction, uh, the music introduction, uh, which was a score by James Horner from Jean-Jacques Anu's 1986 classic, The Name of the Rose, uh, based on the book by Umberto Eco. Uh, and the last line of that book is, I don't know if you can butcher a dead language, but I'm going to do it right now. Pardon my Latin. Stat Rosa Pristina Nomine Nomina Nuda Tinimus. And that translates roughly to yesterday's rose endures only in name. We hold only empty names. Uh, and our first guest, Katie, or the first guest we're going to talk to, uh, Katie Herzog, utilizes that text in one of her pieces uh, on denoting any idea of uh, changing the nature of things by naming them or classifying them is a theme that shows up in her work often. Uh, so, uh, Katie Herzog, welcome to the people. Why, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> I don't, I'm going to be so ridiculous as to actually kind of read your bio and talk a little bit about your book. So um, I just want to say that Katie Herzog received a Bachelor of Fine Arts at the Rhode Island School of Design in 2001 and, and a Master of Fine Arts at UC San Diego in 2005. She is doubly masterful. Uh, she studied library and information science at San Jose State University and currently serves as director of the Molesworth Institute, um, which she's going to tell us about a little bit later, I think, because it's some fascinating stuff. Um, recent projects of hers include a dic dictionary of textual asylum in Basel, Switzerland, and a pop-up publishing platform for rejected research in the Quint Gallery restroom in La Jolla, California. So people brought rejected research into the bathroom and like left them in a little yeah. nice little uh, box there. But um, and uh, I'm Matthew Timmons, the editor of Insert Blanc Press, and we just did a book of Katie's uh, called Object Oriented Programming, which is a catalog of uh, an exhibition you did, I think, last now a year ago. Yeah. Um, at Park, uh, 
Park, a Xerox company, the Palo Alto Research Company. Um, it includes essays by Amelia Acker and Andrew Choate, who's also here with us today. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's got like 50 full color images and installation shots and, as I said, great essays. And it really collects almost a decade's worth of work. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a great thing. So we're so happy to have you here. Thanks for, thanks for being on the people. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. the book is beautiful. And I was going to start by, or start, start you talking, because we have a lot of things to ask you about. Uh, I was going to start with Park, um, but you can start anywhere, but if you don't mind, you can just tell, tell us like what it is and what the residency is all about and your relationship to it. Sure. Um, Park, uh, Palo Alto Research Center, it was it's, uh, started, I think, and founded in 1970, and it's in Palo Alto, which is also where I grew up. Um, and so they have a kind of like a local artist uh, program there, and so... Um, I was just part of that. So I just exhibited uh, from, I think it was like January through March 2012. Mm -hmm. um, and so they asked me to show between 30 and 70 works. So it was really a, a very, it's a large space. It's like, you know, just a kind of corporate office building type space. Um, yeah. And uh, so I, I showed, I think it was like around 56 works or something like that. Right, and a lot of those works are in object-oriented programming, correct? So yeah, so, so the book, um, the book that Insert uh, Blanc Press published is a like an exhibition catalog mm -hmm. um, that came out looking really nice, and uh, so. and and not all, not every single piece is in there, but we do have an exhibition checklist at the back. There's some pieces that we that. They, I think one of the pieces was like a 13 foot long piece that we didn't have, like, you know. Yeah. Was that the Wazigi? Did it Wazigi? WYSIWYG is in there. Yeah, WYSIWYG is in there. Yeah, there's just a few the, pieces that they ended up missing. Psychedelic Illuminated Manuscript. Yeah, Psychedelic yeah, Illuminated one. Manuscript, yeah. exactly. So, but yeah, a, so, like, well, a before lot we of plays, peel away sure. from Park, could you, because it has to do, because it's cool and interesting, but also because it has a lot to do with your work, can you? talk maybe briefly about like the history of the place like what they were into yeah so park um i think that i first started uh found out about park when i was researching um for a painting i made on uh, about richard stallman and um so it's called richard or it's freedom richard stallman folk dancing and so i was um just kind of learning about his uh work and i found out that he used to be a folk dancer and i was really inspired by that so and Stallman was a big proponent Stall of like free software. Right, exactly, right. yeah. And um, so then I also found out about, um, you know, his uh, kind of brush with the Xerox machine and um, the Xerox machine. Which was what? Tell us. Which was, I think it was when he was at MIT, and if I remember correctly, it was, um, you know, his, it was a, a early encounter with, um, um, with, um, I guess, Programming. Is there a remember like Xerox gave? It's just because it's one in one of the essays. Xerox gave the MIT like lab where he was like a, like a Xerox photocopier or whatever. Yeah, and he was. It was, the, and it, he wanted it to be like open source, and yeah, so he like yeah. yeah. So um, so that was kind of like an early project for him that you know blossomed into this amazing kind of life's work and career of 
of open source and free software movement. Anyways, um, so then I kind of found out about you know Xerox and Park, and then I started re researching Park, um, and that was um, I don't know like in 2008 or something, and so. I found out that they had this artist program there, um, and so I contacted them and I said, "Can I, you know, uh, submit a proposal?" And they said, "Well, we're, you know, programmed out until like 2011." And right. at that point, it felt like it was forever, you know. And then I was like sitting around, like at my mom's house, just like I don't know, I was like, "I gotta get out of the house." So I just like walked up there, you know, or something, and. Uh, and it's, um, it's very close, yeah, right. yeah. So, and then I started to get kind of like interested in just as like a kind of a parallel to like my life or something because like I read, you know, supposedly Steve Jobs, you know, goes to Park in 1979 and you know takes the the, fam the infamous tour and steals all the information, you know, steals right. all the ideas and then you know creates the Apple computer, which is like you know partially true, but I mean that's like the lore, and. Um, you know, so that was like days away from like my and like miles away from like my birth, actually, like that right. that that tour itself. So then I started to kind of think about, you know, just what was going on, you know, like throughout my anyways. Um, but so uh, so let's see. So, yeah, object oriented. So Park um, has, you know, is famous for a lot of developments in the field of information technology, including um, the graphical user interface, object oriented programming you know, like early kind of personal computers and I mean, just so much, so. And so tell us like, I mean, besides that history and you actually like growing up right next to or really close to Park, like how does that, how does, how is that like a place that was really kind of fertile for your work and just the perfect place to show your specific artwork? Well, the fact that I grew up close by didn't really make any difference whatsoever it was right. just something that like when I started to when I was making the work and I was thinking about kind of like oh yeah I don't know it, it kind of factored in for me like um with some of the like the ideas of like building building language and kind of place and kind of this idea of like object-oriented programming and and just the fact that it was you know you know this kind of relational aspect or something like that was was kind of interesting I mean in a way, but I mean, when I was little, you know, there was like a lot, there's like um, Hewlett Packard, you know, there's a bunch of these kind of massive, you know, information technology kind of corporations around there. And so, I mean, my memories are that I used to ride my bike through their parking lot with my friend Julia. And cause I would like, I thought that they were like military establishments that were like making bombs. And so I would like pretend like I was a spy and we would go in there and we would like, <laughs> we would literally like spy, you know, like at age 10 or something. So yeah, we had songs that we would sing about it and stuff, which I can't remember. But anyway, <laughs> oh. so, um, so that was like my only, you know, encounter with, with those places. But, um, so yeah, object oriented programming is the title of the show. And it was something that was developed at park. And I really don't, I don't program myself. I don't know really. I don't know much about um, kind of computers and how to use them. But uh, so this is all just kind of like you know anecdotal things that things that I kind of learned through my research. But um, but object oriented programming is a programming language where meaning is created through objects relating to each other rather than kind of like a list of tasks. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of interested in that idea of how, you know, relating that to how kind of language works and how meaning is made. And, and then also 
the idea that Park is has this you know local artist program t- as like a literal kind of object oriented like public programming kind of so that's th- those are some of the yeah well we can swing back around to Park uh, when we start talking about your specific work sure uh, again but we uh, ask our guests to bring in a short audio clip uh, every show uh, so we're gonna do uh, the one that Katie brought in. Yeah, I, um, well, yeah, you guys asked me to bring in uh, up to five minutes of audio about something that I find inspiring or that relates to my work in some way. And I um, have been watching this Sue Williams talk online that was at the Hammer um, Museum in, I think it was 2011. And I really love Sue Williams' work. I think she's really brilliant and I love her delivery of this lecture and I highly recommend all you listeners out there to go check it out on the hammer you know like it's just it's great and uh and her work's inspiring so what I did was I took the lecture is I don't know an hour and a half or I'm not I don't remember how long it is but I just kind of edited out just little tiny bits of you know moments that I found inspiring and then I edited them together so that's what I'm going to play for you now and okay, go ahead. Cue it up. So I was intimidated by the canvas texture. So I have this thin paper, uh, masa paper, that you get wet and make into a ball and can spread it out over, um, you know, glued on canvas. So it's kind of like a drawing. So I wouldn't be intimidated by the canvas. And um, it's just kind of, um, I just began to express, um, what do you call it? Like, um, this how like shitty things are, you know? And um, especially like if you're a woman. And um, um, this is this is a kind of a kind of different. It's um, um, well, you know who that guy is. And um, <laughs> Duchamp, uh, the muse, and he's looking at this thing written uh, above the urinal in the bathroom, and it says, the joke is in your hand. And this one's called Irresistible. Um, um, she's made of, uh, of rubber, a certain kind of rubber that deteriorated, but like, um, as you, she, she, I cast her from a woman this woman, she's a pretty woman. I wanted it to like a classic, you know, like a sculpt, uh, Greek sculpture kind of thing. But it also has pigmented, um, uh, pigmented rubber painted on it. Very weird process, and um, she's covered with words. And um, the woman was when I was casting her. She was telling me about how her boyfriend had had beaten her and she had to like hide and live in um 
in a woman's shelter. You know, it was really interesting. Like when I ever started talking about this stuff, putting this art out, you know, I people start relating all these things to me. It's really like, you know, just um, it's really common. And um, so she has like words written on her, like things that were said to me. You know, like if you really didn't like it, you would leave. You know, that kind of thing. And I. I forget, but um, anyway, so she, she has kick marks on her, and um, she's so irresistible, to, you just have to kick her, and um, it's actually really like this, as a scenario that happened to me, but I actually wasn't thinking about it, I was kind of thinking, um, like, in general, we'll show a woman like this, and that's kind of weird, because that, that is what happened to me, but... Um, so we, she was being shown at 303 Gallery, and we, we had to put up this sign that said, please don't kick, because people would just come in and kick her, because they couldn't help themselves. That's sort of semi-conscious, letting these images come out and sort of having their way on a really big canvas. And, uh, oh, patriotic with three unfortunately infected testicles. Now let me use the pointer to see if we can find those testicles. Let me see. Hmm. Hmm. Da, da, da. There. Hmm. Hmm. Here. No, no. Here. Maybe I think it's around there, yeah. Yeah. It's called the pleasant colors. They don't look the same, <laughs> and they really did. There, but anyway, um, their images again. They're they're made up. Uh, they're like uh, um, like maybe how genitals evolved on an, on other planets or something. That was fun. How you have to do stuff that's you you know. It makes you inspired. Springtime for the RNC, and, and uh, I have to say, like, they, well, these are these are anuses, but they also are like an excuse to do these nice lines. I just love doing these nice smooth lines. They kind of get thick in the middle, so it's a win-win situation. This is called unsupervised shoes because they're really getting abstract. Um, but they're still like shoes. They're heels and stuff like that, and toes, and and they're like losing it. All right. So, so just so everyone knows, Sue Williams did not do the intro music to. Uh, I accidentally played a little bit of the name of the rose there. <laughs> That's okay. It's a separate yeah. thing. I'm sure she wouldn't I, mind. I think you can tell the difference, though, between Sue Williams and the name of the rose soundtrack. <laughs> I couldn't so, now, that, now that we've cleared that up, <laughs> um, do you want to tell us about what your, I mean, aside from gender politics, probably, I would guess, yeah. uh, your other big draws to Sue, CalArts yeah. yeah, Cal Yeah, CalArts. Um, well, I, uh, I just, I, there's so many things that I could say about why I kind of like her work and relate to it. Um, but I think that, um, that, you know, there's just such a closeness between, like, her 
you know, thought and work and life. That she's actually making things that she doesn't know why she makes them. And then, you know, she makes these things that, like, other people, you know, she makes these things coming from a place of, of, of real violence and, you know, memories and things that, you know, that are, like, unspeakable, you know. Right. And then, and so then she kind of, she has, so her, her work is a platform to, um, to, like, express all of these um, kind of ideas about, Desire, and uh, so whether that whether that um, means just the fact that she's calling a line attractive, right. you know, or she's actually creating this, you know, figure that sh that people are kicking in a gallery, you know, like I mean, I just think that that's really amazing. So um, I I I really I, I you know I relate to that um, kind of way of working, and in that like I've always just had such a closeness to what to what it is that I'm kind of working on that a lot of times I have absolutely no idea um, how to articulate it until like years later um, and so I think that you know so so that's something that it, that that um, you know I relate to you know and, and Andrew Choate who's here as well and wrote the essay and one of the essays in the book I think that in an interview that you guys did like I think you Andrew you cite this a couple times that like your work comes out of things that you didn't have the words, yeah. things you couldn't put into words, and so, mm -hmm. you know, you yeah. made a painting. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is great, and uh, I, because we have Andrew here, I kind of wanted to bring you in to well, yeah. talk about, like, it's interesting, like, the experience, like, of writing an essay about, like, a whole body of work. I mean, you were covering, like, not just, like, a show. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was an exhibition, but you were, like, talking about... 10 years of, a, of an artist's work. And can you talk about that experience of in, engaging with Katie's work? And I don't know if you guys knew each other really well before. I think you did on some level, but talk about that. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, honestly, it was really great for me. I mean, I didn't, I hadn't seen most of that work before. Um, you know, I had seen a couple of Katie's other shows and we collaborated on um, another show that she did in a library that um, she curated and then asked me to write a little, um, you know, piece that people could pick up and uh, read in the thing. So we had a little bit of history. Um, and when I, you know, got a chance to actually look at that whole body of work and think about its context at Xerox Park, it, it, um, I, I really use it as a platform also to deal with things that, um, you know, were sort of innate in my thoughts dealing with uh, how art and technology relate to each other and especially as it comes down to just, you know, a blob of flesh and mind that has to interact with objects. I think that's strange enough. And then you have objects that um, have electrical parts and that gets really complicated. Um, and I think the way Katie deals with that just in terms of color and material is finally a sort of approachable and pleasant way to engage all those tensions that we have to, you know, live with and breathe with. You buy that, Katie? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. But I mean, was that the sort of thing that, uh, you know, that, I mean, do you, is that a fair assessment, you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I give, I give 
Andrew's essay a stamp of approval. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be bad, you know, if he had a totally different take on it. I'd be right. curious just well, to see if it was. And yeah. we should talk about just a couple. Let's let's mention just a couple examples of paintings in the book here. So, sure. and and if you go to Insert Blanc Press uh, right now, you I've got a few images up on the People's Blog. So we've got C C is for Cookie up there. Uh, the Mr. Watson, come here. I need you. And uh, and one of the the freedom from information. So we wanted to mention the Molesworth thing, but I think C is for Cookie and Mr. Watson. Come here, I need you. Are two great examples of something that's going on in your work on a regular basis. And I know that you talk about it. Do you want to pick up like just explain one of those? Pick one and explain. Um, I mean, I'd be hesitant to explain anything because there's so <laughs> there's so many. It. Yeah. If you want to talk. To yeah, yeah, it. sure. So one thing. So one one thing I forgot to kind of mention about the process of showing at Park was that um, I had, you know, a ton of work that I kind of curated for the space and then I made, I think it was like maybe 10 or 15 new paintings for the show or something like that. And so it was all based on research that I'd done about Park and the history of information technology. Um, I went to the Computer History Museum in, in uh, Mountain View, which is amazing. Anyways, and so I found out that um, one of the very first bitmapped images on a computer screen was a picture, a moving image of Cookie Monster holding a C and a cookie. And there's this, when I was doing my research in a lot of different sources, there's this really wonderful story kind of out, like, talking, narrating, you know, all these computer scientists sitting around in this room, staring at this computer screen, and all of a sudden they see this image emerge, you know, and it's Cookie Monster holding the C and a cookie, and they're all like, oh my God, and it's like this moment that, oh, the computer is like, it just like busted open like a whole new way of the computer being in the world, and then also, you know, it was totally, you know, random and arbitrary that it was Cookie Monster's face, but the fact that it was a Muppet, I think is like really meaningful um, in terms of just the way computers like, you know, proceeded to evolve uh, from then on. And uh, anyway, so I had this um, like blanket, um, this kind of woven blanket in my house that I um, that I painted Cookie Monster holding a C and a cookie on. But uh, I don't really know how to describe it actually. But I guess like the weaving, the stripes, and the blanket, um, I kind of thought about as uh, data or something or bitmap kind of symbol. Yeah. And then so Cookie Monster is kind of emerging from the data, but there's it's not a very clear um, depiction, or it's not between like like the figure and the ground are kind of one and the same. So it's this, this idea of like this emerging image. I mean, it looks like when you know, it looks like uh, like say a, you a, hold a, a magnet a, up to your TV. Yeah, or yeah, or a web page yeah. like loading in like yeah. 1996, where like the image is like mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of you. I, we don't remember this time very well, but there was that moment where you load a page and like the images are coming up almost line by line, and it kind of. Yeah. has that feel, yeah. which is great, yeah. And I, I can't remember mm-hmm. the, the guy's name, but someone, someone of the scientists or engineers involved in that, I think, came out and said specifically that there was no, that the image of Cookie Monster was, was arbitrary, you know, which you kind of just said as well, but I don't know if it'll spoil the essay. No, it's impossible to spoil. Um, <laughs> it's that good. You know, it, <laughs> Uh, you know, for me, yeah, even just that idea that it is arbitrary, um, uh, well, it's totally, it, if it is, it's unconsciously meaningful because, I mean, the cookie monster, by his nature, eats everything. And 
that alone I find interesting is he he's an example of someone who digests and absorbs every possible thing that he can put in his mouth. He'll eat the cookies, but he'll also just as well eat the box right. that the cookies were in. Or like the smaller plates, Muppets. right? He eats the, yeah, smaller Muppets, plates. Tables. Right. And also speaks, his most famous phrase is, om nom 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 nom. <laughs> um, Which turns out to be like uh, a very important language of the 21st century, right? <laughs> right. I mean, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, there's... Um, there's a lot of ways to read that. I mean, the thing that I think is important about it is, okay, you've got someone who doesn't speak um, in an articulated language and who consumes everything. And if you think about that in terms of uh, the way I remembered that story was he first appeared sort of when two computers in separate areas were hooked up and it was a really proto-internet type um, environment. So if he becomes you know, the the emblem of the internet, which they say is arbitrary, but for me, and um, and especially the way this image is created and the materiality of it, um, I find it highly emblematic that something that seeks to um, consume everything becomes our uh, first internet transpired image. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, did we say that it was painted on a blanket yet? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Which all the... Also, I mean, was, was important in the idea of the relationship to the body and the idea of warmth. And so to have this face, this Muppet face on a computer, I mean, because computers kind of, you know, weren't thought of as... The personal computer, you know, didn't exist. And so they were really thought of as just these kind of, like, hard data machines that, you know... So, so it was a philosophy change, I think, in that moment. Right, and they were, and this sort of transfer of information, albeit from like one room to the other, or computer to computer, or whatever. Was, um, what's that? That was absolutely the first. That was brand new. Yeah, it was. It was, was like a moon landing sort yeah. of scenario. But moon landing for uber nerds. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that sort of tr- transference of data, which which ostensibly is supposed to bring people closer together. And I think I'm just mm-hmm. quoting Andrew here yeah. now again. Um, you know, we can see now all you know actually serves to alienate people from and each other. Emphasize distance. Emphasize yeah. distance. And so the blanket for and I don't know if you said this or I'm making this up, but the blanket as a as a thing that is physical and that you that is very tactile. Yeah. And and you warmth, use it for so. warmth. Yeah. Exactly. And one thing Katie was um I think she I don't know, maybe gonna say something about how the computer, you know, we think about it as being cold and um distant and stuff it just made me have this thought that you know how laptops get so darn hot and you keep them on your lap and they're messing up uteri all over the world and they're and they're and they're and they're burning your balls (laughs) and um you have you can get like little plastic trays which i have um and i completely endorse plastic trays to protect (laughs) the world's uteri from the computers and the balls um plastics but it's so strange because computers we think of as these you know i i think of as cold technical things and yet they're so hot they're making reproduction impossible Right. Uh, that's great. <laughs> a machine that infinitely reproduces, right? Can you, can you, mm-hmm. can you just, uh, just uh, we got to kind of wrap up sure. this part, but can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Moldsworth oh, Institute? Yeah. 
Sure. And, uh, and you know, the, there's the one image on the site that I put up of the T-shirt, the Cycling for Libraries project that you did. And I think this is a great image for kind of what we're talking about right now, but the Freedom from Information one. But tell us a little bit about the Molesworth Institute in general and that project, the Cycling for Libraries. Sure. Um, I did, let's see, was that 2011, I think it was, Cycling for Libraries? It was the very first one, and it was a... Um, international kind of librarian conference on wheels and uh so it was kind of like a big like like a think tank and it was like librarians from i think it was 80 countries i could wait 80 that i don't know maybe but anyways a lot of different places um got together and rode um bikes from copenhagen to berlin and uh and had a kind of a library conference along the way stopped at libraries you know talked to politicians i mean it was really amazing actually so my so I participated in that and as you're a librarian and yeah the and Molesworth I Molesworth Institute specifically right? yeah I was representing I was working at the Whittier Public Library at the time but also representing the Molesworth Institute and uh, so which is what by the way for people who don't so know. the Molesworth Institute was kind of came up kind of founded I guess uh, roughly in 1956 um, and then um, I became a fellow in 2009, I think it was, and then became director, um, I guess, a couple years ago. And uh, Norman Stevens, um, uh, it was kind of his his project, um, and he's director emeritus, and uh, it's like an absurdist librarian organization. Um, And what else can I say? We're working on the website right now. Um, Sorry, there's some distracting music going yeah. on, but we're going to be professionals. <laughs> we're gonna Just focus on too. the baby. Yeah. Look at the baby and that dog that Just looks blame like it on the baby. <laughs> um, so, anyways, um, but the Molesworth so Institute they they have some they're an unorthodox library organization, are they not? Correct. Yeah. Rejected and research. so we have, um, I think it's eighty-eight fellows at this point. 88 or 89 fellows. And uh, the fellows are more or less um, people who are um, librarians making kind of art or making creative work about libraries. But it, um, And you have like a journal of rejected research. Yeah, it, right? yeah. so and we publish a journal of rejected research, um, which is like um, just literally rejected research. And so, uh, like, so it has to be actually rejected from a journal at least once, right? And yeah. that's the idea or the, well, yeah. I, I did an open call, um, for this last one, um, at the, at the, um, gallery in La Jolla. And, uh, it was, uh, I included kind of, it didn't have to be rejected from a journal, but it was more of like an, of, you know, it could be rejected just, from I don't know. I, th- I, th- I sent you a couple of rejected music reviews I wrote. Yeah. Um, and they were rejected just because they were critical. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well, um, well, it's, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And then sh- just yeah. one final oh, thing. Yeah, for sure. So sure. then the so the shirts were quotes from li- the archives of uh, of um, research from the Molesworth Institute, the book by Norman Stevens. So I took little quotes from that um, book and then made paintings on shirts. And then every day of the bike ride, I wore a new, sh- different a different shirt. shirt. Yeah. So that's what's on the website right now. Right. right exactly. On. 
So, well, thank you for coming on the show. And thank you so much. Stick We're not around. kicking you We're off. not kicking you out, but we want to switch to talk about yeah. in front of <laughs> <laughs> the candle spotlight. But, yeah. you know, ju- obviously sure. But it's been in. great. It's been great to have thank you on. You. Oh, we should definitely let people know that Katie's got that show opening at the Night Gallery oh, in June. Job. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's thanks. an exciting project. Uh, we'll have to have you back at some point to great. talk about thanks. that. Do you want to yeah. say the facts? I think the opening is on June 29th. And that's at Night Gallery in Los Angeles, California. Yeah. Okay. Great place. Thanks. Um, so we're going to uh, kind of, as Ben said, switch the spotlight to Andrew Choate. And we're going to begin by playing a couple audio tracks that he uh, sent us. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything about them or just let them play. Um, you know, which which one are you going to play first? Yeah, I guess it's the, the not untitled. Name okay. Okay. So the first yeah. one we're going to hear is called This Is Not Untitled. And... Um, Let's see, I did it last uh, March in New York, and it's a lot of short thoughts, and I was thinking in those terms um, when I was generating the material for Stingray Clapping. Right, okay, great, and here we go. This is called, this isn't called Untitled. Pledge drives remind me of carom billiards because there are pockets in snooker. You can run, but you can't aquarium. Some people have an inner child. I have an inner thong. The more gargoyles you swing and hiss at, the the less likely the ventriloquist is to take his arm out of your back. Je vous cobra. Wind is because combed. You have no shirts, pants, sweaters, or shoes in your closet. Just fabric Fritos. Enlarged curls to slide into. All corn silk sultry. My three-piece suits are sponsored by Monster Energy drinks. They're nothing but cuffs and collars. (laughs) When you wave a scarf or any part of your costume while dancing, it indicates the aspiration of your spirit. I moisturize my lips so I can eat potato chips with greater relish. When you look at me like that, your eyes put the edge and acknowledge. (laughs) Use computers to research dinosaurs. Use humans to research computers. I teach a class in men's defensive breathing. (laughs) Honk if you're not in denial. My nipple ring is sarcastic. Become so proud you have a heart attack. Out of nowhere, all at once, bang, there's a corpse. Or a baby. (laughs) Dear Michael Francis Anthony, your imagination is like soft-serve yogurt, kept at a constant temp, in a lightless box, and, whenever you want it, perfectly, predictably, star-shaped doo-doo dripped. (laughs) I make underwear shaped like a squirrel if you're interested. Republican anal is the third most popular search on porn sites, understandably. Moth enthusiasts do it toward the light. I've thought about getting gold teeth, but think I'll go with glass. Because then I could show off the vivid darkness of my mouth behind clear, fragile synonyms for teeth. Replace the meat of the world's strongest man with the hope of the world's most noble, and then you'll have some idea of the power of an ideal perversion. Hey, I like your proportion of goddess to bear 
to marmalade to pince-nez. Sleep diagonally across your lover to make those appetizing diamond grill marks. <laughs> no one is quite sure which does more to whom, the tide or the longing. You do not want to see a self-basting turkey in the wild. <laughs> the thing is, my pompadour isn't about vanity. It's about the jungle. <laughs> a commentary thereupon. There a pomp, here a pomp. Where a pomp, jungle a pomp. A contrastador. <laughs> my belt buckle is an airbag. Just back up, run into it, and I'll show you how it works. <laughs> it was your natural affinity for mathematics that made you so vulnerable to Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> I'm a significant graffiti artist. It just so happens that I do all of my work on 8.5 by 11 paper and limit myself to standard fonts. <laughs> Silence is golden, but chocolate is brown and very... If there are no harpsichords in heaven, I'm quitting it. Your foot will double as a sundial. Outdoor fondue is the best because when something falls from the sky, you can just dip it and eat it. <laughs> One might be the loneliest number, but L is my favorite letter. It's negligent for roller coaster operators to let you ride next to someone you know. Strangers should scream next to strangers. <laughs> Cell phone, cell phone, French perfume. At least you'll have a first-rate doom. Okay, so when I'm done with this piece, what I want you to do, instead of clapping... Okay. Um, so I just wanted to mention that the next piece is totally different, and uh, are we getting feedback Hold on Luba? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, that was... Uh, executive surprise decision um so i just to also have some pause between that last piece because there's a lot of words in that last one um this the next one is really short but um has to do with more of an audience participation zone which i realized i um i've written like four or five pieces that deal with that and this was from a performance at a music festival that's uh, for like noise and electronic music called Spitfest in South Carolina every 4th of July in Columbia. Okay, so when I'm done with this piece, what I want you to do instead of clapping, to signify that the composition is over, you're satisfied with what I've said, Instead of clapping. Well, only if you're going to clap, you don't have to make any promises right now. If you don't like what you heard, you wouldn't have clapped. They don't have to do this either. Don't look at my fucking paper. But instead of clapping, for the rest of you, please roll your tongues. Just roll your tongue. However long or softly you want. When I'm fucking done, as a group, I know you can't hold it for a super long time in a vociferous clip. So if you're feeling meek or mellow, start out slow, quiet, even. If you feel giddy and exuberant, go ahead and let loose with those trills. If you're nervous about how the sounds will come out or on the fence about whether what I said deserves any gestural accolades, cool, just hang back. 
listen to others, see how you feel. But please, when I'm done talking, roll those R's. Sorry, I don't have anything else to say. So did you want to talk about those a little bit or um I don't th- I mean I think the I think the intro is good with that one okay. um as far as the first piece I mean honestly it it's actually a long piece and there's a lot of things in there that's the only time I've read that piece um but there are things in there that ended up in my book also on Insert Blanc Press, oh, really? Stingray Clapping, which yeah. actually um, I was uh, putting together that manuscript at the same time that I was doing Katie's essay. And um, there may not be sort of direct links, but probably the most interesting and obvious one is that the book is like less than 250 words, and my essay for Katie is probably 10,000. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Well, I want to ask you or point out the obvious, which is that you are a writer, and just like what we just heard, uh, you you perform your pieces or do performances, and they're not boring, (laughs) and they're not they're they're funny, uh, and I don't want to shoot myself while you're. Well, yeah. yeah, which is not a common thing when you're listening to uh, writers or poets read their work. It's yeah, often that is the case. I know. So, so <laughs> I guess what I'm asking is like, what is your relationship to performance, and how much you consider that? That I mean, I'll say it, entertaining. Yeah. Well, I mean, I say I know, like, like, oh yes, I know my work does that. It's not that. It's that um, I've wanted to shoot myself many times at other readings, and I got confused when, because I went to Cal Arts to get an MFA in writing and had no idea that so much of it was sitting and listening to people give three thesis presentations and um, performances or writing, reading writings, and um, it's so easy to fall asleep and just not interesting me, and I hated it. Yeah, and I, I had never been to a poetry reading until I went to Cal Arts. I never, and I never, you know, took a poetry class or um, wrote poetry before that. Um, I actually did a radio play for my thesis at Cal Arts, and then it was after uh, Cal Arts that somebody asked me if I uh, could do a reading. Um, at their house, they had this curated series, and so I was like, was oh, that? my. It was Jen Hoffer. Oh, okay, yeah, right. Um, who now teaches at Cal Arts. Actually, then she didn't. Um, and I was like, oh, goodness, I'm actually going to have to write stuff that wouldn't make make it feel so painful to listen to. And that was the first time I was like, well, I better go through all these notebooks. Because, I mean, I, I've been sort of writing things in notebooks forever, but I never actually used that kind of stuff in the things that I was doing at CalArts. I sort of had focused sort of textual projects to work with photographs or with radio or what have you. And I was like, well, I'll just mine these notebooks. 
and uh, found that I already had like a ton of things basically already written that needed a little bit more work, but um, that could be a lot of fun. And then, you know, after doing that and a couple of times, there was, I got some, you know, it's so much easier to have performance opportunities than it is to have publishing opportunities that I actually learned that I enjoyed writing for performance um, and it was a totally different thing. And how is it different? Like, I know I've read that you... Um, let's, let's, and let's talk about yeah. this specific book, oh, Stingray true. Clapping. Yeah. Blanc. I mean, is that... I mean, because we just heard uh, the the longer performance of yours that a lot of that stuff is very similar to what ends up in Stingray, in Stingray Clapping. And right. Some of the pieces were in there. Exactly, yeah. But, I mean, with the Stingray Clapping book, it is very performable, of course. It's, yeah. But it's, how would even that book difference from be different from your other kind of pieces that you go out and perform like uh, you know I, with stingray clapping i really wanted it to be stuff that works on the page yeah, exactly. isolated on its own with a lot of room to breathe and you can do that in uh with performances but it's it's not quite as fun even though one um comment that i've gotten that i do think is accurate um that's something that uh i should work on more as a performer is sometimes things are a little dense and it's so much sort of condensed imagery or description or information that you get a ton of it and it's a really short thing and then to move on from that before giving other people who haven't written it or, or thought about it a chance to absorb it, um, it can be a little dense. So um, with Stingray Clapping, I really was just like, let's just put the things that are that are coherent on their own, put them on a page, and let them um, have some space. And you and you put that together. I mean, I know because uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I know how you put it together in some <laughs> respects. But but you know, talk about where that material came from. Because as I recall, you were looking back at like notebooks that you you had been carrying around mm -hmm. since before you were at Cal Arts. So yeah, some of that some of that was was really old um, stuff that yeah it was just that I wrote down in a notebook and it's not sometimes you know it's like a, a word or a phrase it's like you hear something and you know you're miss overhearing it but it makes your mind connect some words and I'm really interested in those if it's not immediately and abundantly clear exactly what it is if there's some sort of tension in um, what it evokes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really like those and try to find those, you know, in my own writing and in all these old notebooks. And, and, you know, in preparing to have you guys on, I mean, we looked at a bunch of material from the both of you, but we, yeah. there was a long, there was a couple different places, including actually in the essay that you wrote about Katie Herzog's work and in an interview you did about your own work, mm -hmm. uh, in fact, Simile Magazine, where you mentioned, and Ben and I both picked this up, the kind of tension. Uh, you look for areas of tension in whether it's between like words that don't seem to make sense mm -hmm. you know, together like horse by watching which mm -hmm. is in uh, the book or like necktie popcorn. I mean it's it's like they don't make sense and yet somehow like I can understand necktie popcorn more than I can understand horse by watching. <laughs> sure. There's like a tension in these pieces because you read it and because of the way that we are you mm -hmm. know, just as people we're trying to like Un, you know, understand what horse by watching yeah, is. Yeah, because we're humans and we're meaning making Yeah, we put machines. our brain right. into the work as much as we're just like 
pull, you know, reading and for comprehension or whatever, we put ourselves into the imagination of what those words next to each other actually mean. Absolutely. And they're close enough, or they sound like phonetically, or I don't know, somehow they're close enough to being believable as a description of a thing that exists. <laughs> right. But then as soon as you start to believe that they are a real thing, uh, they immediately sort of trip over their own feet and fall back into absurdity and then maybe come back into... Well, yeah, like, or... Or you or you, you, you like wonder, like, yeah, I mean, okay, if it is believable, wait, how is it believable? Wait, and then you like... You, you, yeah, because you can start questioning yourself and your right. own sort of... Powers well, of intuition. Like, like bathroom, sh bathroom shoulders, which uh -huh. somehow is really evocative, and I understand what that means. But then, if I actually had to tell anyone what that meant, it's like, well, it's, I don't know, it's, you know, you just, well, you get the you'd be at that, a loss for words, really. Right. Unless you had a time machine and you could go 50 years into the future and realize that bathroom shoulders is the new slang for, mm. I don't know. Scabies, yeah, <laughs> yeah, whatever, and they all could. So they all could deep down, yeah. your work is about. Yeah. Scabies. It, it is, it yeah, is. Sure. Ultimately, oh, I, you know, I used to perform with signs. Um, I used to make these cardboard signs and hold them up, that, and just have people look at those and um, uh, focus on that for a minute. And God, I haven't done that in a while. But there was one where That's the I mentioned first like performance I, of yours I ever saw. Yeah, that well, that yeah, that I mean, actually, I did that at the first one at Jen's house. But there was one that mentioned it wasn't influenza. It was some God. I wish I could remember it. I've still got it. But it was some disease that there was some other phrase. So maybe that's. Uh, um, sort of deep in my unconscious. But one thing I wanted to say about those phrases like bathroom shoulders or horse by watching is, you know, so, mu so much of our sort of linguistic life is understood to be this sort of direct communication um, and we're supposed to understand what people say and what they mean and communicate. Tell me how you feel about that. What do you mean? And it's so much about making things clear. And I think that um, writers who do that um, are really sell the medium short um, as something that's capable of evoking other worlds and other things that we might not yet understand completely and may never be able to grab you know our minds around but that's how music functions that's how dance functions that's how painting functions it's really how all the art forms function for some reason people don't want to let language function that way Why and not, you're on you're on my hobby horse too i mean yeah. I say this stuff all the time as well it's like i think i mean it's it's it, for some reason because you know we are talking all the time and we deal in language on a you know daily basis when you start messing with the basic uh, kind of fundamentals of how language actually clearly, uh, you know, conveys information. People mm -hmm. get freaked out. Yeah. And I mean, but at the same well, time, well, they they fall back on storytelling, which for sure. me I find um, an extremely painful cop out. That for some reason people run rampant with, oh, I'm a, I'm a writer. You must love stories. <laughs> you must love storytelling. And yet, and yet, you know, even again in Stingray <laughs> clapping, I mean, you're, some of those pieces have these weird kind of like really minimal uh, narrative kind of evocations, like yeah. karate dinner, karate dance, karate dinner dance. And yeah. Immediately, uh, that's a piece in the book, and immediately I'm like imagining that that thing happening, a karate dinner, a karate dance, and then a karate dinner dance. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, it's really exciting, right. and yet I don't need the whole, I don't need a whole story. That, that no. bit, those 
seven words or whatever yeah uh, are more than evocative enough mo- evocative enough and I don't even need to go to those like famous six word or nine word story things so, like yeah. that's even better than 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 those kinds of things mm-hmm. sure and or, we're about to wrap up here mm-hmm. yeah but I have four four questions I'm gonna just throw them all at you okay. at once Andrew mm-hmm. okay yes no maybe yes okay. <laughs> that's correct <laughs> okay no they are they are they are thus. What is disc golf? Who plays disc golf? Where do I play? And why should I play? <laughs> um, <laughs> 30 seconds. Okay. Disc golf is just a fantastic sport. The closest uh, course to um, Keichong and out the only course in L.A. City, though, that uh, it looks like before the end of the year, we'll have one in Kenneth Hahn Park, but we have one in Elysian Park at Dodger Stadium. Who plays it? Great folks and a lot of rednecks. And why should I play? It's great to see something glide in the air. Perfect. <laughs> All right, well, we thank should you. actually wrap it up, but thank you so much to Katie Herzog and Andrew Choate for thank being you. on The People. For sure. Thanks. On K. Chung, 16.30 a.m. You can go to insertblancpress.net and find this and go to kchung.org, kchungradio.org, and find you know recordings of this. And please come back and listen to The People uh, every third Sunday at 3 p.m. It'll be fun. Thanks fine. so much. Is that it? Wake up, you sleepy head.